0: life is more than just about us and so how do we both make sense of life for us as well as fitting into the bigger picture i think it is uh the challenge that we each face every day
1: welcome back to the impact entrepreneur show my name is mike flynn and i am honored to be your host Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, Dr. Paul White grew up in a family business and sometimes at dinnertime his dad would lead a discussion and ask questions like what needs do you see out there and how might those needs be met and Dr. White started working full-time for the family business the summer he was 12 years old and while he learned a lot he declined to work at the company when he grew up partly because he and his father didn't always agree Instead, he started counseling people at his church and then ultimately became a psychologist who worked with kids and families. But in the late 90s, he forged a career in the corporate realm. After all, 85% of the companies in the U.S. are family-owned, so his business consultant friends started asking him to help out because of his background, and ultimately, that led him to business succession planning and employee engagement. One day, Dr. White was working with a father and son in their business, and they realized they were just not connecting. And just prior to that, Dr. White and his wife had read the book, The Five Love Languages by Dr. Gary Chapman. He thought it might be of value in the workplace, so he pursued Dr. Chapman for over a year and finally got through to his assistant and set up a meeting." Dr. Chapman had already had 20 or 25 people pitch him with spin off ideas about his book, but was interested in what Dr. White had to propose, specifically about an online assessment tool for workplaces. Together, they developed a set of tools to translate the five love languages into a workplace context, including a book called The Five Lu- Languages of Appreciation. In the workplace. The materials have been translated into 20 languages, and the book is selling more than a thousand copies every week. Dr. White is passionate about showing appreciation for employees, not just the high achievers, partly because the research shows that companies that treat their employees well and pay attention to employee engagement function better than those that don't. He also loves helping organizations find the right way to show appreciation, depending on the individual and cultural preferences. For instance, a side hug might be the way to go in the South, but in the Northeast, a nod across the room is more common. But it's not just all about business. Dr. White is a huge proponent of empathy and treating employees well, not just because it's good for the bottom line, but because employees are people. They're not just production units. This is a great conversation, and if you are a leader in an organization at any level, you need to engage with this message. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, embrace for impact. Dr. Paul White, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Very excited to to have you for those of you listening I'm a former client of Dr. Paul White he and my dad and I and, and our firm helped or hired Dr. Dr. White to help us work through some interpersonal relationship issues back in the day and happy to report that we all still love each other so you he did a good job there's a great review there for you Dr. White but the very first question I want to to talk with you about and gain an understanding of is what was your first job
0: well my first job uh, related to uh, our family's business i grew up in context of a family business outside of kansas city in lawrence kansas it's a manufacturing firm that my father and grandfather and my mother started where they designed and manufactured point of purchase displays so like hallmark card displays back in the day or end caps you might see in the uh, grocery stores and that kind of stuff so I actually started my dad was a you know a depression era person and so I started working full-time the summer of uh, when I was 12 and I'm not sure whether that was legal but (laughs) (laughs) it happened and so and I say worked uh, with quotes around it because uh, I like most young people had to learn how to develop a work ethic but Yeah, worked uh, seven forty-five in the morning to four thirty out on the factory floor doing a variety of things. Whereas at the back of a conveyor belt, or sweeping, or cleaning up stuff, or um, packing boxes,
1: what did being around your family, around these entrepreneurs, working at such a young age teach you about the value of work and what and the lessons that work can teach one if they. Have an awareness of it.
0: it. Probably in combination with that, uh, my dad was an entrepreneur, and frequently it seemed <laughs> at dinner time he would uh, we'd have a family discussion of you know what needs do you see out there that need to be met, and uh, how might that happen, or what needs to happen to to be able to do that? Because he was very uh, creative as well, and so uh, I think. That was as large an input as anything of really thinking about work not in terms of having a job necessarily, although that's obviously the interim, but more about meeting the needs of potential customers, including the employer, you know, who has something that they need to get done, and you know, can you do it or can you learn how to do it and, and make sure it happens, and, and then from that, I mean, all the whole things about doing a good job. I mean, our major customer was Hallmark and, you know, they were known for excellence, you know, and so things had to be done excellently. And so in fact, I think it it became sort of overdone because I've learned not everything has to be done excellently, but clearly thinking Mm -hmm. about what needs to get done, uh, finding work to do. If you're done with your job, that was a big one I had to learn somewhere in (laughs) middle school. Um, and so, uh, you know, sort of those basic uh, lessons that a lot of young people are learning later now because they don't start working until later in time.
1: What about dreaming did Did you learn anything about cultivating your dreams or have a have a freedom to dream or did anybody breathe life into your potential at an early age? You know I mean,
0: I was like a lot of boys you know I had dreams and visions of being some sort of professional athlete. I was a pretty good baseball player for a while, but from a work point of view, no, I I don't think so. I I think it was sort of very practical. I mean, I, I don't really remember dreaming too much about things in a reality basis, at least until much later in my life. So it was more, you know, you've got to work to, you know, meet the needs and, even though things might be going well, they aren't necessarily going to continue to go well. So you need to set things aside. I mean, you know, they lived through the depression and the Dust Bowl and then World War II and various, you know, economic downturns. And so uh, there there was always a sense of, you know, you just keep your hand to the plow and, and make money and save money and give money uh, and help those in need as well. But um, it was not, framed at least as dreaming about some big goal that you're going to reach.
1: What was the catalyst in your life that caused you or inspired you to start dreaming differently? You said that that happened later on in your life. What was the event or events?
0: Yeah. I'm not sure except for getting a a clear picture. I did not go into my family's business uh, to work uh, as an adult, uh, Partly, I didn't see how my skill set fit. Partly, uh, my father and I had, you know, we butted heads a lot and it wasn't a lot of fun to work together. And I had what I would call a pretty enmeshed family. I mean, everybody else in my family worked for the business. And so I used to tease that if I moved back, you'd see this mushroom cloud go over the city because things would just implode. But as far as dreaming, I think it was getting in touch with who I was and my skills and abilities and seeing where those could be used and probably a key part of that was uh, my college years i had the opportunity to go to a great school in the midwest in chicago uh, the west suburbs called wheaton college and really was impacted both by my friends my roommates the faculty uh, and really sort of exposed to uh, a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds internationally and all over the country that that i had not been exposed to and it was like wow there is a big world out there and then probably within that i had the opportunity to study overseas uh one summer of college where i studied uh ancient and biblical history and archaeology in greece and italy and israel and man that just blew my boxes away seeing people from different cultures that way so that was Hmm. was cool you
1: know there there's you kind of alluded to something that i talk about a lot which is Four fundamental questions that everybody asks themselves sometimes on a daily basis, but at least many times through their throughout their life, at different inflection points. And those four questions are: Who am I? How do I show up in the world? What do I do when I get there? And who do I do it with? And I think you just said that you had to reflect and and think about your own skill set and your own who am I and how do you fit in the world, and that was probably. There was pro- there may have been a certain expectation that that you're going to be part of the family business, mm-hmm. and no, for sure, I got I got offers every six
0: months, you know, for several years to come back and join. So there there was clearly some uh, expectation and pressure there.
1: How did you approach answering or trying to answer the question, "Who am I?" for for yourself, and how do I show up in the world? How did you start playing with those questions in your own mind? and heart
0: yeah so um i come from a very strong uh faith-based background i, I grew up in a, a protestant uh, a christian home and that was a key part of my development seeing myself as not just a person created in the image of god and uh, accountable to him my creator sort of what i'm supposed to do with my life and energy and all that and so that was a, a key part throughout and so i saw that I had, you know, some social skills, I think, and uh, some verbal abilities and the ability to influence people in ways. And so started down that direction and actually started working sort of informally or maybe an internship with a church. And uh, through that, uh, that's actually how I got connected to counseling because uh, I was in Phoenix and Phoenix in the time period, then, at least a lot of people sort of went to start their lives over and they would wind up in in small groups and churches and that kind of stuff where I was helping lead and I saw a lot of damaged people and a lot of it from family issues um, and had a desire to try to prevent that so I wound up getting my master's in counseling at Arizona State and started working with kids and families in a variety of settings and and saw that if I was going to do that and support my family in the way that I wanted to uh, i need more education so I wound up going and getting my PhD at Georgia state in Atlanta and in counseling psychology and sort of continued that area of serving children and families. I developed a specialty of evaluating students have learning difficulties. So ADHD and dyslexia and that kind of stuff. And that went well. And uh, then there's another stage where I can go into that later. So
1: what ultimately, I mean, cause how does one go from counseling in the church environment to working with families to becoming an expert in engagement in the, in the corporate <laughs> realm. I mean, that, that's, yeah. that's a pretty, yeah. pretty. Well,
0: well, you know, it's, it's a circuitous route, isn't it? Uh, so, <laughs> so here's the deal. And this was the transition. So, uh, I, I live in Wichita, Kansas, and I have for 25 or so years. And, I uh, was here, had a successful practice with sort of a regional leader on evaluating students, but, Some friends of mine who are business consultants knew of my background in uh, having grown up in a family-owned business. And I was still involved at the board level and other kinds of informal ways. And they kept running into family issues because, uh, you know, 85% of all the companies in the U.S. are family-owned. And so they asked me to help out. So I started doing consulting to help with two brothers, brother, you know, dad and father, whoever, uh, getting along and, and communicating. And then that led into business succession planning, which, you know, you know, Mike is sort of the key piece for family owned businesses. And I joined a team that I was sort of the relational expert, I mean, the the family guy and helping the the senior couple figure out what they want and also how to be fair to the family. If, you know, one son gets the business, you know, what happens to the other son or the daughter and also sort of uh, communicating with the next generation. So that's sort of how that happened and so in the late 90s i started doing that and did that for the next i don't know 15 17 so years i still do a little bit of it but uh and it was fascinating because i got to travel all over the u.s and meet some very significant high uh, because the people i worked with worked with high net worth families and family and businesses and so uh i got introduced to you know some pretty cool families and places and uh, so then going into employee engagement and all that, I was actually working with a um, uh, highway construction firm in North Carolina. And I was talking to the dad about our plan. I said, you know, how's this, You know, how do you think it's going as far as the succession plan? And he said, I think it's going well. My son's stepping up. I think it's going to work. I walk across the hall and ask the son the same question. And he, he goes, this is a disaster. This is never going to work. <laughs> I, I can't please my dad no matter what I do. And, you know, I saw that they were not connecting. Uh, and at that time, or just prior to that, my wife and I had read the uh, book, The Five Love Languages, by Dr. Gary Chapman, which I would highly recommend to anybody. It's a unique book in the, in the book world in that it sold more copies every year than the prior year for 25 years. And it, I think they're at 18 million now. It's in 50 languages. It's an easy read. It's about personal relationships, how to communicate. Uh, love and when it's meaningful with the recipient and uh, and also learn how you like to be shown love, and I thought, you know maybe this could be helpful. So I pursued Dr. Chapman for a year and uh, finally got through as administrative assistant, set up a meeting, and um, pitched the idea, and um, he had already had twenty or twenty five people uh, you know pitch the idea to. but but given that I was a psychologist, so I had sort of the relational background. I I was working in the business uh, arena and it so happened that he and I went to the same undergraduate school. So that helped as well. And so I developed uh, what became uh, the Motivating by Appreciation Inventory and Online Assessment. That's part of our tools. I was just checking today. We had 215,000 people worldwide take it, and then developed training materials around how to show appreciation at work. So essentially translating the five love languages into... Work how to use it in work-based relationships. and It's called the Five Languages Appreciation Workplace, and uh, we've been fortunate. We sold four hundred twenty-five thousand copies, and it, like the Five Love Languages, we're selling more every year than the prior year. So I'm thankful.
1: Why do you think? And congratulations on that, by the way. Because I remember when we first met you, you were just embarking right. on on that project with Dr. Gary Chapman. And before I ask the question I was about to ask, I, I want every entrepreneur, this is a very important turning point in your career and your trajectory. Because you had this idea, Dr. Chapman had this platform and success from the five love languages. You had this, this idea that was very complementary to the work that he was doing and his expertise. And, and it was going to take a certain amount of risking your ego and pride and energy and effort and all of that stuff to approach this man who has just hit the ball out of the park and obviously hit, struck a, a chord with millions and millions of people. Right. And he could easily say no to you, just like he had the previous 50, 60, whatever people that had pitched him an idea or so how did you, Prepare yourself, or did you prepare yourself to tackle that emotional challenge of, of potentially being rejected, even though you knew and were convicted that your idea could add value to his idea?
0: I'm sort of filling in the blanks via retrospect. I'm not sure that i that might be totally accurate, but you know, one of my life principles, I mean, you know, get' prepared. The research you find out, you, you know, uh, figure out what's been done, what, you know, why it might work, you know, and, and, but you know, I had my thoughts together pretty well and had different reasons and all that. So I wasn't just going in there willy nilly, obviously. Uh, and I don't think I was trying to sell him the whole ball of wax. In fact, he, he said, you know, I'm not really interested in, in writing a, a book with somebody right now. He had just finished with somebody and I don't think it was a great experience for him, but he said, but I am willing to, you know, I'm not a computer guy and, and let's, take a look at the, this assessment piece. And so it's sort of like, you know, what he wants to do, you know, we'll go that direction and, and see uh, where it leads. Um I, I think the other side of it is, I mean, my wife who's very different than I am personally, is always amazed at, the, at the, the risks I'm willing to take. I, I, I have a fair amount of ego strength. I don't know that it's always reality based, but you know, I mean, I've, Spoken, you know, at Michael Milken's, uh, you know, gathering uh, in Southern California to some super wealthy people. Uh, I, you know, spoken three times last year to the leadership of the Centers for Disease Control, uh, different kinds of things. Who, you know, but and I try things out and I give it a go and I do the best I can and and I guess that's part of it. I don't have a, a an expectation for things to be perfect. I'm always. Learning, I have sort of and teach my team we have sort of an 80% rule that you get 80% and let's give it a go and then get feedback. Because if you wait for 100%, it, it's just never going to happen. And the amount of time and effort it takes to go from, like if you think in school, from a B to an A, plus it's just huge. But if you can get a solid B, B, plus, and then grow and learn from that, uh, that's sort of my approach. It's,
1: mm-hmm. So. I think that's hugely valuable, too, because I think that everybody is waiting for that 100% before they take action, and it's never going to come. It's the, it's, a, it's a myth. Yeah. And if you have something that is 80% good enough, then you have to act on it because the only people that are going to ever really notice the difference are going to be the subject matter experts, which oftentimes aren't the ones that you're targeting or going to be working with anyway.
0: Right. But I think the other part, of it, I mean, you have to, part of it has to do with your presentation and that if you're pitching it, that this is a perfect deal, they're going to see it's not and, and you're screwed, you know? So, but you say, look, we've thought about this, we've worked on it, we think it's pretty solid, but I want your feedback. I mean, and you always, I think it's beneficial to take a learner's position and say, you know, uh, what pieces need to be better? What did we miss? You know, and people... Value that both sort of the humility that goes with it as well as, you know, being able to give input to help make, you know, the, the product or the process better. So I don't, I don't think it's just the 80%, but it's the 80% plus saying, hey, you know, uh, we want to learn how to make this better and any feedback can give us would be great.
1: One of my favorite quotes is it's from Patton and it's it's uh, a good plan executed violently is better than a perfect plan never executed.
0: <laughs> so true, so true.
1: What's up, my friends? My book, Master the Key, is a tool that will remind you of the truth that dwells within you. And if you don't believe me, Take the word of the more than 66 people that have left a review on Amazon or the reviews on Facebook and other channels that have been left for the message of Master the Key. This one comes in from Robin Maker. Asks good questions, recognizes relationships as most important. Most self-help books act like cheerleaders. Think positively. You can do it. You have potential, etc. etc. I find them insepid at best and in general very unhelpful. This book acts more like a mentor or a life coach or even a counselor. It asks tough questions and pushes you to answer them thoughtfully. This sets it apart from others. It has an unusual presentation as well in story form. I appreciated not being pandered to with empty rah-rah statements about my future potential achievements. Thank you so much, Robin, for this review and for all of the others who have left a review. If you have not picked up a copy of Master the Key, hit pause, head over to Amazon and purchase a copy or two or three of Master the Key and give them away. And let me know what you think about the book by leaving a review on Amazon. I'm so incredibly thankful and grateful for all of your continued support. And now, back to the show. So you've had over 200,000 people come through and do that sir, the management by appreciation um, assessment, yeah, the online assessment. What attracted you to the idea of appreciation and engagement in the in the workplace to begin with? What were you seeing?
0: Well, I saw it wasn't there. I mean, I saw it was a problem. I mean, all kinds of people are complaining. And this was, you know, 10 years ago, and it it, clearly the issue hasn't gone away, just that people didn't feel valued, they didn't feel satisfied. And you know, I'm coming in the side door as a psychologist, a relational specialist. And I'm sort of tre- you know treading in HR territory. You know, I talked to some friends of mine who were corporate trainers, and I said, you know, this employee engagement stuff isn't working. And they said, we know, but we don't know what else to do. And I didn't say to them, but I said, well, let's figure it out. I mean, I said it to myself, and so that's been the the goal. Of, uh, and that's, I mean, again, going back to that thing about my dad asking, you know, what needs you see. Uh, that's sort of how I approach work and life. It's like, what needs are out there and can I or along with somebody else help make that better, either solve it or, you know, uh, improve it? And so it seemed like there was the opportunity. And fortunately, we have. I mean, I, I'm proud to say that when since our book has come out, this field has really changed from uh, in a lot of ways, not not everybody, but from recognition and rewards, which have a part. Uh, but, uh, but they're largely performance based, to appreciation and appreciating a person and i I think it partly comes from my value that people have value and it's not just you know your high performers uh you know if you think about your team most reward and recognition programs such the top 15 percent and sort of the same people over and over but if you're in the middle group the 50 to 60 in the middle good people solid people trying hard working hard they're just not the stars They don't hear anything if they don't get recognized. And so we saw the opportunity to be able to help sort of fill the gaps around recognition and communicate authentic appreciation to people, sometimes about performance, but not always, because sometimes we're not at the top of our game. You know, we have life uh, that, you know, we're sick or we've got our spouse or kids are sick or something. And, you know, uh, we have value besides just you know, knocking
1: it out of the park all the time. I think, you know, as you've probably read that Gallup came out with a report recently that indicated that 85% of the global workforce is actively disengaged at work and it's costing businesses $7 trillion globally. And then here in the U.S., where, as you mentioned, 85% of the businesses in the U.S. are family-owned, 70% of their employees are actively disengaged at work and it's costing US businesses half a billion dollars. Right. And and they bring in these consultants to build out these reward programs and to build out these to talk about culture and to talk about vision and all of this stuff. And and I think that the the biggest gap that these companies are seeing or 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 are experiencing rather is the reality that in order for an employee or anybody in the organization to really be engaged in the company's vision, mission, and culture, they have to have a vision, mission, and culture for their own personal life. And it's the company's moral obligation now, I, I believe, to create a platform for their employees to have the freedom to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if you're aware, Mike, but, you know, the SEC just came out with a ruling in August uh, that they're developing uh, ISO standards, uh, international standard organization uh, that, you know, put together standards for performance for uh, production around where I live. uh, We have a lot of aircraft uh, production and so ISO is huge here. Well, they've come out with Uh, Proposing standards for human capital management because the research is showing uh, not that research is everything, but that's what people like to listen to uh, is that uh, companies that treat their employees well and pay attention to employee engagement uh, function better than those that don't. I mean, I've got 50 citations in one of my chapters in in the Five Languages of Appreciation that. Uh, you know, teams that and and staff that feel valued versus those that don't, you have less tardiness, you have less absenteeism, you have far less turnover, you have higher productivity, higher profitability, higher customer uh, service ratings, lower incidence of employee uh, accidents on the job, lower employee theft. I mean, and, and lots of less conflict, and so when we figure out and pay attention to it good things happen and so now investors are saying hey if this if there's a difference between companies who pay attention to this and those that don't that's going to be part of our evaluation for investing in you know uh stocks and 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 so forth and so there's a whole movement of it's called in- enterprise engagement that not only involves employee engagement but customers vendors uh other stakeholders and so forth
1: Going back to those four, that's very interesting, by the way. I didn't know that that the SEC had issued that because it's super important. And I think that the fact that non-psychologists like myself are seeing this and and just intuiting it, like it's just like a natural human need, right? But going back to those four fundamental questions, who am I? How do I show up in the world? What do I do when I get there? And who do I do it with? every person at every level within every organization engages with these questions in some way, shape or form. And, and it comes down to purpose, mm-hmm. it comes down to that big, huge question. And we are at this period in time where the pace of innovation and technology and artificial intelligence is rapidly growing and expanding. And, Companies, in particular, publicly traded companies, have a have a duty to their shareholders to run their organizations efficiently. Which right. means that they're they're always trying to put a, a damper on human capital costs. Which ultimately, if you just play that out further, the artificial intelligence is going to eliminate a certain section of people going to work. And if people spend their whole life going to work and they therefore their identity is largely attached to what they do every day Mm -hmm. how does a company begin to tackle the emotional and psychological implications of the fact that there there are going to be people that they have a responsibility to help create a path for them to answer some of those questions how does it how does a company even begin to build a roadway for that
0: Well, you know, you could make it complex or you can start with the first couple steps, which every journey does. And the first, a first step, I don't know if it's the first step, but a first step is to start to understand that uh, your employees are people. They're not just work units, they're not just production units. They have lives outside of work that impact work, they have characteristics besides their skills and abilities that they apply at work that influence who they are and influence their interactions with others. I mean, whether that's being introverted or extroverted or being anxious or having a good sense of humor. But I think the starting point is we have to sort of, for some people at least, rediscover that we're talking about people. I'm a person, you're a person, um, my assistant is a person, you know, the customers. And so, we start there and one of the issues in in the work we do with you know communicating appreciation with one another is that not everybody you know feels appreciated in the same way and that's why we have the five languages and so forth but the question often comes up you know well what do I do if I don't really appreciate you know Joe or Janet or whatever you know should I just fake it absolutely not You shouldn't try to just blow through it it's not going to go well but but the solution to that is to try to figure out uh, Some value about them. I mean, uh, uh, there was a for a while. I was sort of like, well, you just sort of sort of gut it out. You just try to appreciate. That doesn't work. I mean, appreciation really flows from valuing the person, and that can be valuing what they do. I mean, I often tell people, hey, you know, uh, think about the person at your job that if they didn't do what they did, your life would be a lot tougher. You better make sure that you show them appreciation because. Research shows that 79% of the people who quit a job cite a lack of appreciation as the main reason they're leaving. And so it it's, it could be about work, or it could be you get to know them, and a little bit you have lunch with them, or you know sit together a break or whatever, and you get to know them, and you find out there's some touchstones that you know. That's why when I speak, I sort of share where I came from because I've lived in Kansas, and you know Chicago, and Phoenix, and Atlanta, and you know travel around and. All that, and there's some touchstones, or I have twins, you know, and now I have grandkids. So you find out, and then you can start to get a better sense of who they are and how they tick. And so I think the starting point is, you know, that you work in relationship to those around you. You can't can't do this for the whole organization. You can do it for the people around you, and then you can provide structure and resources for other people to do it but uh, it's coming back to that we're people.
1: One of the things about people is that we all have hurts, right? We all have um, woundedness. Mm-hmm. And and when we go to this workplace, we put on oftentimes a facade because we, we don't feel like we have the ability, the place, the um, freedom to be vulnerable or to allow our woundedness to show up. And, and maybe that's because we don't necessarily know how to to look at our woundedness i think that you know one of the one of the things i talk about in in my book which is a parable master the key is that our key our key we each possess a key and it's made up of four pieces story gifts action and community and the story piece has to do specifically with our narrative and Mm -hmm. has to do with how we look at adversity and how our adversity actually is something that should be elevated because it might be the very thing that frees us to be who we are created to be. Sure. And, and I think there's so much gold within these corporations that is just waiting to be mined. It's just sitting under the surface. And yet companies and organizations around the world have these compliance limitations that they have to deal with from a human, human resources point of view, right. there's like this wall. So how, does, how, how can a company, an organization that has these rules and regulations, but also needs to see people as people and recognizing that everybody's walking around pretending like they're not wounded? How, does, how do we draw out that goal in a way that elevates everybody and you know adheres to all of the, the rules yeah. and regulations? Or is that even possible?
0: Yeah, I think so. I guess I would say that I don't know that everybody's pretending. I think some of us are protecting and rightfully so, that we we put on shields or whatever you want to call it to you know, when you have a wound, if you have a cut on the surface, it's more tender and to to a regular touch. So some word that would normally be not a big deal. If you've recently been sort of knocked down uh verbally by somebody you know you're a little more sensitive and so we protect ourselves and you know i know authenticity and vulnerability are a, a big push in our culture currently and on the one hand i agree on the other hand dude there are a lot of people that have had lives that they it's wise for them not to trust and, and be vulnerable because the people, the people close to them have used against it. So there's mm. wisdom that needs to happen. You know, when you just don't tell your whole story to everybody out there, pretty soon you learn that's not the best way to go. So I think that an interim step is to learn to build trusting relationships with mm. those that you're working. And uh, I've done a fair amount of work in writing an article on, Uh, trust and how to rebuild it and fast company and some others that we tend to talk about trust in an all or nothing kind of thing in our culture, which is not the way it really exists. We don't either trust somebody or we don't. First of all, trust is very situation specific. You know, I may trust you to take me to the airport, you know, drive me to the airport, but I'm not going to trust you to do open heart surgery with me because that's not your competency. You're not competent, And so, so it's situation specific. I think we should talk that way. It's like, you know, I don't, I'm not sure that I trust that Anne can really hold, handle this whole project by herself successfully. You know, I mean, she's got it in different parts and maybe with some um, more supervision and training. Yeah. You know, yeah. But just to hand it off, I'm not sure she can handle it. And so try to talk about trusting for what. And then, you know, I forget where I first heard it, but there's a model of trust of three C's competence, uh, consistency, and character that you know competence can they do it or can they learn how consistently do they show up and do it or they don't you know um or they're irregular and, and then character meaning that they look out for my interests as well as their own and you know uh there are people we interact with they're they're competent and they're consistent but man they are self-driven you know and mm-hmm. you know I mean, you can take any one of those. It's sort of like a three-legged stool, and so if you don't have all three, it really doesn't work. But the cool thing about that model is you can take, say, you know, well, why don't I trust them? Well, they haven't really been consistent. Well, so maybe I, I'll trust this project to it. But instead of waiting months to check in, I'm going to check in after a week. You know, and you set up different ways to deal with each of those areas. So anyway, my point is that you know, I think we have to take it. To some degree. And I'm not I'm not Mr. Corporation by any means, although we're working with some major big multinationals now. But the whole issue becomes down not only persons, but personal relationships. So we help people build trusting relationships with their teams across teams that they have to collaborate with, you know, downline, upline with your vendors and so forth. And I think that when there's trust for for a certain task then we can help people grow into being more open and potentially vulnerable in in an appropriate way. But just to say, hey, you know, you should be vulnerable and open, I I don't think so. I think that's going to go bad because not everybody, it's not always malintent. Some people are just stupid, (laughs) (laughs) you know, And, and sort of boundary violations. And they didn't realize that, you know, you shouldn't tell everybody that, you know, Susan was, was sexually abused. She you know, you learned she was sexually abused as a teenager. I mean, you know, some people just don't have aren't very smart about information they get. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, does that make sense? Wait.
1: Yeah, no, it, it does. Yeah, I mean, you have to be smart about it, and at the, and at the same time, we, we have to acknowledge that some of our our challenges, some of our failures, some of our setbacks, if we. We have the ability, from my point of view, we, you know God gave us the ability to to vision cast into the future, but He also gave us the ability to reflect into the past in an intentional way and draw out the the, the gold from from those experiences and we have to be smart about how we deploy them and utilize them in, in, in our in our workplace and, and with those whom we have relationships with. and it's not like you're going to walk up to Dr. Paul White and automatically start sharing all of this stuff because he's going to immediately categorize you as an oversharer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: they, they are out there. <laughs> but you know, I, I think a, a part of this uh, is about being authentic is being humble. I mean, not being focused on the image and it comes back to purpose and identity. It's like, is my identity wrapped up in what people think about me and my image? Uh, But if it is, then I have to put forth the best image and look and sound good. And, you know, everything's wonderful. You know, I've come to learn and believe that when a person or a couple or family looks perfect, you know, they just, they're groomed nice, they're together, they seem to have together financially and other kinds of things. They're not, nobody is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, there's something somewhere that's not going well for them and, Creating and maintaining an image takes a lot of energy, and that takes energy from living life, you know, at the real level. And so, I guess my point is, part of this is sharing your weaknesses or failures. You know, I'm not mechanical, dude. I mean, I I have to figure out. I got to get advice on how to, you know, change the blade in my mower. You know, I mean, it's just like mm-hmm. my mind doesn't work that way. It's okay. I mean, not everybody's strong and everything. And so. Or, you know, you share uh, where you, you know, didn't do as well as you would have liked or made a not so great decision for the purpose of learning and what you learned from it. Or that, you know, people hear, you know, how many books I sold me, you know, it's like I'm a special person. Hey, I to have to been graced by God to have the... Uh, honor of working with you know dr chapman and i'm sort of uh, for a long time at least very much on his coattails and so it was not so much about me as you know, just the opportunity i had
1: yeah this episode is brought to you by the lawton marketing group a full service advertising and design agency specializing in websites social media apps logos and more Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call so speaking about management by appreciation and this assessment that you have you've got you know again more than 200,000 people that have completed this this assessment it's got to be one of the largest data sets now in that domain ever i don't i mean i can't imagine that there's another assessment like it that's got anywhere near as much but what are some of the assumptions that we all make about engagement and appreciation in the workplace that we all have wrong
0: well one misstrong strong misbelief is that you know employee recognition and authentic appreciation are essentially the same they're very different at least in the way we define it employee recognition is a good thing uh, when it's designed and implemented right it's i mean you have recognition for years of service which is just a whole total different entity because it's not motivating at all but uh, you have, then have recognition for and rewards for performance. You set some goals, you reach them or exceed them, and you you know you earn something for it. And we want that. We want people to behave well we and finish their paperwork, make sales, whatever it is. But appreciation uh, is not solely performance-based because we're more than just production units, and we have more value than just what we produce. And so there's those characteristics of somebody that's got a delightful smile and fun laugh, you know, and just like being around. They're not the, not necessarily the greatest producer, but you know, you can still value that. So uh, uh, the point is, is that, you know, uh, just because you have an employee recognition program doesn't mean, you know, in fact, we know for sure that uh, largely people don't feel valued just from recognition. Secondly, that not everybody's motivated by rewards or, Tangible gifts, uh, or even compensation. Now, when we talk about tangible gifts, which is one of the five languages of appreciation, we don't talk about bonuses and you know raises and that kind of stuff. It's really small things that show you're getting to another person. You know, it's whether you bring in their favorite coffee, or you see a magazine about their you know favorite football team and you bring that to them, or they're starting to uh, I don't know train for a marathon and you get them on a running magazine or whatever. Uh, but only you know in the recognition reports world, they spend a lot of money on that. And our research shows that only six percent of the employees view tangible gifts as their primary way they want to be shown appreciation. Uh, words is the highest; it's forty-six percent of the workforce, but that's still less than uh, half of the employees. And so then you have quality time, access service, and even physical touch that fill in the gaps of how people want to be shown appreciation. So there's that misconception.
1: Physical and, touch has got to be a tricky one in the workplace.
0: It is, it is, it's less than 1%, but you know, and it differs regionally and culturally. I mean, in the South, I live in the South, they sort of do side hugs and that kind of stuff. And, you know, in the Northeast, they sort of nod across the room. That's about as close as <laughs> But, but, uh, uh, but also uh, it happens and it's largely spontaneous celebration. I mean, it's, you know high five when you finish a project or a fist bump when you solve a problem or congratulatory handshake when you make a sale uh, a pat on the back actually has been found to be the cross culturally most acceptable form of physical touch so it, it's there and 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 but there are times when people are going through a very difficult time that an appropriate physical touch in the right relationship can be very meaningful uh, mm-hmm. you know when You know, a family member's just had an accident or something like that. So, but, and it's always defined what the appropriateness is always defined by the recipient. And I worked with one group. They, we have little buttons that you can get and lanyards with your language. And they had an uh, NHA uh, um, edition they put on. So it was like no hugs allowed. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, some people just don't touch me. I don't want this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. No, I, I get that. What is something that surprised you the most as this assessment you know was completed by more and more people?
0: well, how low uh, tangible gifts uh, are as far as people choosing that the, the thing that uh, what surprised me that we had to adjust to was that just knowing the language in in the workplace isn't sufficient maybe in personal relationships we you know love language you sort of know how to apply that but Fairly quickly, we got feedback like, okay, this person's language is, you know, quality time. What does that mean? What what am I supposed to do? So what we did is we went back and retooled the inventory that once we identify a person's primary language of appreciation, that we then give uh, them a list of 20 to 25 specific actions that they can choose. And yeah, I'd like this. I'd like to go to work and talk about, I'm sorry, go to lunch and talk about work. I'd like to go to lunch and not talk about work. I'd like to, you know, hang out, uh, go for a walk, or I'd like to watch sports again. And then we allow people to choose from whom they want those actions. So being able to, whether that's their colleagues, their uh, supervisor, direct reports, anybody, so they can pick and choose which actions and from whom they want them. And the more specific you get, the more efficient you are. You're not writing notes to everybody. You're not stopping by and checking in on everybody or helping other people out. You only do those actions which are meaningful and, and you hit the target and it doesn't, it doesn't take much uh, to really make it.
1: Does at the end of the day, does it really all boil down to empathy?
0: A, a large part of it, and actually, I w- I would take it a step further. And this is, uh, I might be wrong in this, but this is a bit of a soapbox I have right now because empathy is being is huge in our business culture and language right now. I, I think a lot of people have missed a step, and that's called perspective taking. Because you can't have empathy, you can't feel for somebody else. You know, reactions or situations if you can't see it from their point of view. And our culture sucks, to be honest, Mike, in in teaching people about perspective thinking. Uh, And we got a whole, I don't know how many generations of people that just think about themselves and think, you know, my way of thinking is right, and they don't, they haven't learned to stop and look at things from another person's point of view. And that is key because a lot of us will try to communicate appreciation the way that's meaningful to us, but that's not what you know our team member might like. Especially, if we have a, a least valued language. It's one that doesn't really mean any difference to us. It's sort of like for me, gifts. Yeah, give a gift. That's fine out there. Uh, but for somebody whose gifts is really meaningful, they're like, dude, how can you not like gifts? You know, and uh, and so being able to understand other people's viewpoint, their history. Um, their values—it's—it's uh, it's huge, and then that the empathy builds from that.
1: Is there a like a modular way that people build in space to cultivate these skills? Because you know people's days are are filled yeah. with projects and responsibilities and all of this stuff. And you know um, Daniel Pink talks about twenty percent time. Is that where this kind of activity would would lie, or how do you guys advise? your clients and, and customers to start developing and building in time to cultivate these unique skills that could enhance their overall yeah. people relationships.
0: Yeah. I, I have to tell you, I mean the number one reason people give why they think appreciation isn't communicated more is because everybody's busy. And, and I understand that. And I think part of the success of our materials is that we've been able to figure out ways to help people do very small things that are either very close to what they're doing uh, or almost, and it doesn't take a lot to change it to make it effective. But when we talk to groups, whether that's just a a small team or a big organization, really emphasize that to change culture and to create culture, you, you need both structure and spontaneity. If it's all structured, it feels very mechanical and just you're going through the motions, yeah, yeah. If it's all spontaneous, it sort of runs out of energy because you sort of just forget to do it. And so structure in the sense of you add on this to what maybe a meeting that's already going instead of creating a new meeting or committee, you you add, you know, take five minutes at the beginning of a meeting and share about good things that are going on or when, you know, some appreciation that you received or communicated. Um, and, but then the spontaneous part is being able to sort of adapt it to your own culture. We've had places that have a mining company that they the, the the guys out in the field the, the cement uh um, mixers and truck drivers on they like this stuff and we had these symbols and they created stickers that they put on their helmets that shows their language and we have use hospitals and we had a place that created a, a station of free cards that you know you could go and write get a card and write thank you something. so it's both spontaneous and structured and uh, i have to add there has to be visual component Uh, culture is very visual and you need visual reminders. If it's all text and all words, it's going to get lost in everything else. So you need, whether it's symbols or, or posters or, you know, some celebration kind of things as
1: well. Did it surprise you that so, so many people are responding to this in such a positive way? I mean, it's funny because you, I think you have like, you look at the five love languages and you and you look at the the management by appreciation and there's probably a certain amount of people or maybe everybody is a skeptic until they see that they're all skeptics together and then they can <laughs> all be real with each other and right. see that this is normal it's not woo woo right i you know at
0: first i can say not everybody's a skeptic i mean i have cheerleaders i mean maybe it's Often it's people who have experienced the five love languages personally and found them to be significant in their lives. Um, and then other people that it's like, yeah, we need to learn how to be more positive in, in ways that are, are meaningful to people. I have, yeah, then I have people who are sort of open and curious, you know, and they're open to it. So maybe a little touchy-feely, it sounds like. And I have healthy skeptics. And, when we, and I have unhealthy skeptics, too. I mean, they can always prove it won't work for them, which is fine. But when I get to people who are, you know, not into it, I just say, hey, just don't try to fake it because then that undermines the perceived authenticity for everybody else. And if you can don't worry about being obstructive, just stand off to the side and you can watch. And what happens is when they see that this is authentic and that really um, it's a commitment over time that uh, a group makes that, you know, they, they become more receptive to it. So I will say this. I mean, the surprise part is, I mean, we're selling over a thousand books a week online. In fact, two weeks, last couple of weeks, it's been 1,500 and 2,000. I'm like, where are all these people coming from? And find I mean, it's like, I don't know that many people. Uh, so, uh, you know, my, all my cousins have already bought books. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's fun and delightful. And, and I, in the sense that I'm pleased that people are finding the information helpful and then they share it with others.
1: Well, as a from one author to another, I mean, that's got to be incredibly validating to see people just engaging with your the message of the book and the content and the and the research and everything. Um, it's got to be very edifying yeah. to you. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. And I mean, you're uh, you're you've, you know, directly and indirectly impacted hundreds of thousands of lives at this point, you know, which is also got to be. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah,
0: the, and then we're in 20 languages. I mean, you know, and I, well, I just had a major corporation are they're, they're paying for us to translate our inventory into Portuguese to be used in Brazil and Thai and Mandarin Chinese. And so, and that's the other, it's not just, it's not just sort of a U.S. kind of thing. And I don't think it's a fad. I mean, it's a, but in that it's a true need and then Stephen covey you know author of the seven uh affected people and first things first i mean he said you know being appreciated is the next highest need after physical survival
1: Hmm. Uh,
0: and Hmm. so you know it's deep within us yeah
1: for sure dr white you are uh, an incredible human being you are um you are actively pursuing who you are called to be and discovering that on a daily basis. So I wanted to have you on the show and I'm, I'm grateful for you being here. And before we wrap up with the same questions that we ask of every guest, I want uh, people to be able to buy the book online and, uh, and connect with you anywhere that you are uh, connectable. So sure. uh, where, where would you direct them?
0: So the, the the best sort of you know mothership page is it's called appreciation at work.com and it's the word at but appreciation at workcom and that has information about the book uh, the assessment our training we've done work with toxic workplaces as well and um, and then admin at appreciation at work.com is the best email and uh, you can send it to me through that and and it'll get to me so either of those are uh,
1: will work but well, we will be sure to link to those in the show notes. And here comes the first of the final three questions. The first question is, if you could pick any skill set that you currently possess, so a skill you already have, and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Well, I don't know how
0: much I have it, but if, if I could uh, have the superpower of understanding and communicating love in the way that's meaningful to every person, that would be super cool.
1: Hmm, that would be a cool power. What are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from realizing what we're capable of becoming?
0: Uh, three lies. One is that uh, that I should be able to do everything. Uh, that you know, there are certain skills that we just don't have and we can't do it. It doesn't mean we can't achieve our goal. It just means we have to have somebody help us get there you know so that uh, i should be able to do everything uh that i should be perfect and everybody should like me uh because we're not perfect obviously we have weaknesses we make mistakes and if you chase uh whether it's fame or recognition or however you want to say it you wind up just chasing your tail and it, it never works i mean just do figure out what's the right thing to do and do it and be some people that are supportive and some people aren't. They're sort of neutral. And some people oh, will criticize you and fine, move on. And then the third one I would say is you're not the center of the world. And that's uh, whether that's uh, it, not that we always think of it, uh, Ultimately, we think about life from our perspective and then you travel a bit or just watch people there are so many people out there the world is bigger than us and it's even bigger than people i mean i believe there's a creator and he cares for us and and life is more than just about us and so how do we both make sense of life for us as well as fitting into the bigger picture i think it is uh the challenge that we each face every day
1: final question and actually before i ask this question what it, it it ties into the question. What's your favorite art form? Oh, music. Music, okay. Uh, Music moves my soul. It's 100 years from now. It's 100 years from now. Mm -hmm. And you've left a set of instructions for a composer to create a piece that answers this question. How will Dr. White measure his life? What instructions would you leave him or her?
0: Hmm. Wow. Well, uh, I would leave the instructions that there, need, there needs to be a variety of musical forms that flow or fit together because no one form is sufficient, uh, including instruments and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, whether it's country or bluegrass or classical uh, or anything, and, and that it clearly needs to, to uh, incorporate the aspect of pain in life, but ending with joy and rejoicing in everything goodness of this
1: world. Mm. Dr. White, thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. It's been great to reconnect with you and I can't wait to stay in touch and continue to watch the, the comment like uh, success that uh, you are having right now with your, your work on appreciation and engagement. So congratulations. Thanks so much, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com the Lot Marketing Group, and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact.